Hey, thank you everybody for tuning in for the last couple hours. And uh, it's been a good time doing the afternoon music mix for you. It's Old Dirty Bryce. Hope you all have a wonderful weekend and have a good time at Lotus Festival if you're going. Looks like it's going to be really gorgeous weather. High today was 79, low is 56 overnight, high 81 tomorrow, low 57 Saturday night. And that pattern of low 80s, mid 50s at night is going to follow on into the next week. DJ Spikes will be here next Friday. And Eco Report is up next. Thank you so much for tuning in to WFHB. Everybody have a chill weekend. Enjoy this weather. Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. And financially supported by listeners like you. And I know you have some uh, kind of parallel things going on out there. You're ahead of us in a lot of ways. But we recently had a tent ban during the daytime in the local parks by the local parks board. It was sort of the last uh, vestige of sort of allowing camping. And, of course, they're doing it on right-of-ways like sidewalks and things, too, or they're discussing that. And so some people are scrambling to try to figure out a sanctioned campsite, and there's an initiative to uh, start a tiny home eco-village. And I know that you were involved at various points with Dignity Village out there in Portland, Oregon. A lot of people have seen the videos about Portland being pretty uh, taken over on the streets and all the issues with mentally ill people and the, the drug addiction with the decriminalization. Um, and uh, what they don't see is things like Dignity Village that I know went from being a tent squat to a nonprofit small business incubator. And small building, tiny home, eco village of sorts, growing food and things. Uh, you want to uh, start off with telling us uh, about that unhoused community? I, I will. I do. And but first, I want to um, kind of couch what I do a little bit more. Um, I I would say that what I what I this kind of sphere of my activities 
what I call design activism. And uh, we use a lot of permaculture, urban permaculture, uh, um, placemaking. Uh, you know, it's basically a lot of urban design activism. But I call it design activism. And uh, the power of it isn't just to draw pictures. Basically, like the way that change is normally done in our society, we're, we're trying to approach it from a whole different angle. Like nor normal change comes as gentrification so frequently. And it's where an entire professional class of architects and engineers will be employed by people who have money. And they can be people who um, just have really destructive ideas. And their main impetus is to capitalize, is to extract, is to take. So they want to be able, you know, and, and they, they could be creating housing, but for them, the return needs to be something like um, them making a whole lot of money um, to distribute to investors or something. And usually the, the community is on the receiving end of these initiatives and they don't really get that much access to say anything about what's gonna happen. Um, they might protest, they might be able to comment on designs that are proposed uh, and, and sometimes successfully stop projects or at least fight them and get them changed. So what we do in design activism is we actually convene people, community by community, sometimes the whole city, to talk about the issues that they've raised and then to propose ideas and design them and then show everyone like, this is what it can be like. This is what the waterfront can be like. This is what a neighborhood can be like. So in our work, you know, a lot of times we're we're looking at an entire neighborhood and we're saying, how can this be more like a village, like this entire neighborhood of just housing without even a park or a store? So it's a food desert. It's a place desert. Um, how can it be retrofit to become like a village? And we don't just design, you know, the centers of activity or the common spaces or the pathways that connect them all together. What we're really designing like we'll come out of a dialogue like that and then people will immediately start to create it by taking down fences, opening up space on the interior of blocks, building benches, small buildings, gardens. So people go right into an action mode and they don't wait around for permission. They don't wait around for funding. Um, but, you know, some of the bigger moves for retrofitting an entire neighborhood um, are, uh, you know, do require some time. Like, you know, we've passed these ordinances that let people transform entire streets, entire intersections for free and just really using artistic processes. So design activism in this case has to do with people having um, a voice, but also having a pencil, also having a pen. Like they say that a picture, you know, conveys like at least a thousand words. So we are what happens when a community actually has the professional support of people with skills and talents and knowledge of building codes and knowledge of finance to take what people say that they wanna see in the world and then depict it. And then, you know, for us as professionals, we also take things all the way to, to, to the technical level. We're used to passing ordinances that open up public spaces for communities to directly create. So, um, all of that then is a good introduction to these houseless villages, these DIY tiny home houseless villages, because they're exactly the same thing, only in many ways they're cooler. Like 
there is no neighborhood in this entire city, no matter how much we've done, which is like a thousand, a thousand initiatives across the city. No neighborhood is as cool as our coolest houseless villages. Like the houseless villages are expressions of people meeting their needs, people acting on their own behalf with whatever skills and whatever materials they have to meet their needs. And when it's a need-based dynamic, they're going to create what they got to have. Like they got to have shelter. They got to have a place to cook. But the whole time that they're figuring these things out, they're also gelling a social architecture and figuring out their codes of conduct and the way that they'll make decisions and things like that, that then will result in um, even more, you know, basically community program. Like you go to Dignity Village and when you walk in, you'll see this beautifully like self-regulated, beautifully organized, lovingly tended space made out of stuff just from the waste stream, whether it's old pallets or broken windows, trash, crap, whatever it is, they've organized it into exp like artistic expressions that just will make you cry um, because they're so they're so beautiful. Um, but you walk into a space like that and what you hopefully have read about before you even get there, but you'll see, you'll hit off of it once you're there emotionally is that this place has the lowest crime rate in the entire city of all communities, no matter irrespective of status and class and wealth, Dignity Village, the people with the most crime, like criminal records or like records of, of distress and trauma of all the communities in the city, like the most violence has been done to them. They've been desperate, they've been poor, like their whole rap sheet is intense. And yet, so they've got the greatest amount of intensity of all communities in the city and they have the lowest crime rate and they have the most outstanding culture of participation. So there's a lot to say about why that's true, but this is why Dignity Village has been replicating in endless forms across the entire continent in so many different cities. And when a place like Bloomington is entertaining this idea, you know, there's going to be people that are like, oh no, we can't do that. When they are resisting the idea of a DIY village, they don't know what they are talking about at all. And when they say, we don't want that, and they point at people destitute, struggling in the wind to cover themselves with a tarp and strewn with garbage and evidence of addiction all around them, they're like, we don't want that. It's like, yeah, nobody wants that. The people that are living that way don't want that either. So we're not talking about that at all. We're talking about exactly the opposite of that. And that, that they don't want, is actually what it looks like when you do nothing. And when you actually do something, it looks like everything improving. Like that's the missing piece all across the country is municipal leaders doing nothing. Like ignoring the problem, first of all, because... If they do anything, then they get attacked politically, usually by people with a lot of money, you know, because their fear is always that you'll attract more homeless people. Their their fear is never that the local community, the children of the local community will die in the streets. Like the, 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 the people who grew up to be homeless people will die in the streets. That's not their fear. It's their, it's just, all they have is fear. You know, they're, they're, they're afraid of even learning more about the issues. So what we're talking about is exactly the opposite of what people are afraid of. What if 
what it, like the idea that you take a problem and you turn it into a solution is absolutely permacultural and a lot of people aren't familiar with the idea that every problem contains and suggests its own solution but that is true and when it comes to houseless people you can basically ask yourself a really fundamental question and it goes to the very heart of why the united states exists which is this like do pe should people be involved in their own problems like do we have any kind of faith at all that people should be able to engage their own problems and solve them like the whole the whole reason why conservatives people on the right end of the spectrum keep talking about you know oh we want to uh, people to pick themselves up by their bootstraps is because they're actually they know that that's an ethic that's a that's a philosophy that everyone subscribes to like people need to be accountable and take care of themselves they're believing in self-sufficiency right and yet at the same time when it comes to actually supporting that in the real world let's face it there are people in the political spectrum who are absolutely terrified of people finding their agency finding their voice and taking care of business for themselves and we're not even actually we're not even talking about overthrowing the dominant paradigm we're just talking about people being safe at night you know and taking care of each other that's what a homeless village that's what a houseless village represents it represents safety and security i want to stop myself though for anybody listening to this podcast if they have any doubt about how they like or they're trying to figure out where they stand on all this these kinds of ideas i want to say the same thing that somebody said to me when i first got involved which was a woman as I was entering a meeting for the founding of Dignity Village, she looked at me. She was the greeter at the door. She held my hand. She looked me in the eyes and said, if you're thinking of whether or not you want to support us, I just want to ask you if you've ever considered what it's like to be a woman on the streets every night. Can you imagine what that's like? And ever since, ever since that moment, I haven't stopped being involved in this movement. Gone all over the country trying to help other cities get it started. It's a low-cost, quick-action success story that doesn't ever fail, but it always goes through challenges. And the main one is people caring to do anything, to help, to set aside land. But after basically, you know, the political class will make you pull teeth for years before they finally start to identify with the project. They'll appropriate it, They'll take it over and then they'll start to do all kinds of things that are just wrong. They'll make it, they'll make it a dumber model than it used to be. Um, once they start systematizing and institutionalizing it, they'll reduce the fun and the beauty for the sake of cost or whatever other logistical success that they're trying to have. So um, yeah, we don't get we don't have humanists in charge. We have accountants for the most part, risk managers that that dumb things down and make us afraid. Managers. This is Juliana Daly with Eco Report. We'd like to apologize for the technical difficulties that, that we've been having with the show today. I hope you've been enjoying the report that Zero Rose gave you uh, with um, Mark Lakeman. And now for our environmental reports. This is Frank Marshallek with your environmental reports. The Indiana Daily Student newspaper reports Indiana University unveiled its newest climate action plan, pledging that all campuses will reach carbon neutrality by 2040. 
Carbon neutrality is, quote, a balance between the amount of carbon emissions produced and the amount removed from the atmosphere, unquote, according to the plan. IU will reduce direct emissions from university-owned or controlled sources, as well as indirect emissions, emissions from heating, cooling, and electricity. President Pamela Witten approved the plan, and IU announced it on September 11th. Our university's new comprehensive and thoughtful plan will create a legacy that benefits the people of Indiana for many generations, Winton said in a press release. The plan includes six categories, utility grid, infrastructure, renewables, behavior, financing, and implementation. The recommendations include investing in renewable energy and finding funding for energy-efficient projects. Another recommendation includes improving energy efficiency for buildings, heating and cooling systems, fleets, and equipment. The plan also addresses climate change and resilience. The university has reported a greater demand for cooling as temperatures in Indiana rise, the recommendation states. Temperatures and weather are, of course, likely to, going to become more extreme. Inside Indiana Business reports a case of innovation in rural communities. When Sister Claire Whalen was approached about working on a clean energy project centered on her town of about 600 people in Oldenburg, Indiana, it was one she couldn't pass up. The project was one she had been working to bring to her community for years. So she came out of retirement for the third time after being a teacher for most of her career. Expanding the use of renewable energy and curbing climate change is a passion of Wayland's. It is, one with a, it is one with a foundation in her Franciscan values and she feels is a responsibility. It seemed to me to be an opportunity to really bring awareness to our rural areas, the importance of climate change, and the importance of everybody taking their responsibility to do something as a solution to that, Wayland said. Quote, one of the biggest solutions is to move away from fossil fuel and on to clean energy, end quote. They organized a campaign called Energy Awareness, colon, Rural Towns and Homes, or Earth, where they and local organizations will foster and support multiple renewable energy projects over 10 months in three southeastern counties. The Earth campaign is looking into retrofitting a building at the convent of the Sisters of St. Francis in Oldenburg to be a clean energy demonstration center. Wayland said it works well since the sisters are both looking at downsizing their square feet as well as interested in investing in something they believe in. They previously looked at switching their convent campus away from traditionally electric, she said, but it was not economically feasible at the time. Rural communities like her own have been on the fringes of seeing innovation implemented in their communities. She said this type of investment is a big step for the whole country because rural areas will be required to be part of the conversation. A climate conference aimed at inspiring world leaders to dramatically ramp up their efforts to combat climate change, the United Nations Climate Ambition Summit, was anything but ambitious. That's the message from climate activists after the day-long special summit came to a close without any notable commitments from the nations most responsible for causing global warming. The event was held in New York City during the meeting of the UN General Assembly. There is simply a huge mismatch between the depth of actions governments and businesses are taking and the transformative shifts that are necessary to address climate, the climate crisis, David Waskow. 
director of the World's Resource Institute's International Climate Initiative, wrote in a statement shortly after the summit adjourned. And some of the biggest emitters were noticeably absent from the stage. This story may rank as the most creative ever. Former President Trump says that wind turbines are responsible for the deaths of whales that are washing up on beaches on the East Coast. He claims the noise from the turbines kills whales. It is not clear whether the blame should be placed on the offshore wind turbines or whether the land-based turbines are part of the problem. Land-based turbines placed at a typical distance from homes has a noise level the same as a refrigerator. Therefore, land-based turbines pose no threat to whales. There is only one ocean-based wind farm in the U.S. That's four turbines off Block Island near Long Island. They are in shallow water where whales rarely or never visit. Thus, we can conclude that the likelihood of whale deaths by wind turbines is about the same as deaths by alien spaceships. The deaths of these whales was either by ship strikes or fishing gear entanglements. Despite being at the early stages of the sixth mass extinction, there is some hope. The Center for, the, for Biological Diversity reminds us that it's the 50th anniversary of the Endangered Species Act, which has saved 99% of animals and plants under its care. This week, elected officials, tribal representatives, academics, and conservationists gathered in Washington, D.C. to celebrate the powerful law. The nearly 300 organizations, including the center, was sent a letter to President Biden and Department of Interior Secretary Holland asking them to mark the Golden Jubilee by mapping a strong future for the act and the thousands of species it protects. The act's authors knew its goal shouldn't be preventing extinction. It must be about recovery. And every imperiled species is part of an intricate ecosystem. It's time for all facets of the U.S. government to tackle the extinction crisis by incorporating species protecting protection into the, emission, the mission of every federal agency. Without the Endangered Species Act, enacted in 1973, the United States would probably have lost its national symbol, the bald eagle, forever. Now it's time to focus on the recovery of other icons like the lynx, manatees, and right whales, as well as lesser-known species like hellbenders. And now we... T oh. This is In Nature. The great horned owl is a common owl of North America. It is a large, heavy-bodied bird with a wingspan of nearly four feet. Its upper parts are camouflaged in gray, brown, and black. The broad, bulky feathers on its head, paired with its ear tufts, present a cat-like silhouette. Although this owl's oversized yellow eyes don't move in their sockets, the bird can swivel its head a full 270 degrees to look in any direction. Strictly nocturnal, the great horned owl is easily identified by its deep, soft hooting. Horned owls pair up for breeding in late fall. When mates are calling back and forth, listen for the female's higher-pitched hooting. Horned owlets beg for food with piercing screams, and adults may scream as well when defending their nests. 
the soft trailing edge of the owl's flight feathers allow this ferocious predator to fly silently in pursuit of prey. The owl is equally at home hunting in forests, grasslands, and deserts, eating small and medium-sized mammals, birds, and reptiles. The owl kills its prey by constriction with its powerful talons, which can exert far more pressure than the human hand. Great horned owls establish territories by hooting and occasionally threat behavior. They are generally non-migratory, and adults may live in a single territory throughout their lives. You've been listening to In Nature. For Eco Report, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Frank Marshalek. Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? Here at Eco Report, we are currently looking for reporters, engineers, and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in South Central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for Eco Report, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now for some upcoming events. Learn to search for animals like a real tracker during the Where the Furry Things Are hike at Leonard Springs Nature, Nature Park on Saturday, September 30th from 3.30 to 5.30 p.m. You will scour the trails to learn how to identify animal tracks and other useful tracking skills. Register at bloomington.in.gov forward slash parks. Enjoy Archaeology Day at McCormick's Creek State Park on Sunday, October 1st from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. The White River Archaeological Association will share artifacts and chert exhibits, literature, photos, and maps, as well as excavation equipment and documents on display. Learn about mushrooms at the Fungus Among Us event at Spring Mill State Park on Monday, October 2nd from 4 to 4.30 p.m. You will get to see a display of various mushrooms and learn how important they are and how to protect them. Meet at Lakeview Activity Center. A Flora Field Day is scheduled for Tuesday, October 3rd, beginning at 9.30 a.m. at the Underwood Parcel on Strain Ridge Road at Monroe Lake. Practice with a naturalist on your flora identification skills using an ID key, which opens the door to identifying thousands of species. Bring Newcomb's Wildflower Guide Bug Spray Hat and Water. Sign up at bit.ly slash florafield-oct OCT 2023. Do you know how to tie a good knot? You're invited to Knots and Lashings in the Outdoors Workshop on Sunday, October 8th at the RCA Community Park from noon to 2 p.m. Learn up to six type, different types of knots and lashings, each with its own unique purpose. Register at bloomington.in.gov parks. 
And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy. Today's news feature was produced by Zero Rose and edited by Noel Herhusky Schneider. Juliana Daly assembled the script, which was edited by Zero Rose. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Cade Young and Noel Herhusky Schneider produced today's show. Brandon Blewett was, is our engineer. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Frank Marshlag. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana, bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.